Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast where we talk about how data affects our businesses and our lives, and we talk to the people on the front lines of the data revolution. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Today is a premiere of Masters of Data Deep Dive Edition. Our Deep Dive Edition is when we go under the hood on a topic to get a practitioner point of view. Today's Deep Dive focuses on security and DevOps. In the last five years, the DevOps philosophy and culture has risen to transform the way software is developed and maintained, with its emphasis on faster deployment cycles and cross-functional collaboration. Today, our discussion focuses on security and a DevOps world. How does it work? How is it incorporated in DevOps processes? What does it mean to do DevSecOps? Contrast Security is trying to answer that question for their customers. Their model of self-protecting software has the potential to change how companies think about security. And David Hayfley was the right guy to talk about it. David and I caught up on FaceTime and talked about all sorts of things, and most importantly, about data and securing it. So let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, and I'm happy to have David Hayfley with me from Contrast Security. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks for having me. Just to get started, you know, everybody wants to know, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you, uh, you know, what do you do at Contrast and how did you, how'd you get there? What's your career look like so far? Uh, I've been at Contrast about three years. I run our server-side development team as well as our operations effort, you know, do a lot of work around sort of the, the DevOps practices and tools at Contrast. Also work with our product management team on, you know, designing our roadmap, working on features, execution, you know, and really put a high focus on you know, rapid delivery of our product to our customers, doing that, you know, with the highest possible, you know, out of quality. I was looking at your, uh, your, your resume of sorts, I guess, on LinkedIn. It looks like you, uh, you've been doing this for a while. How did you get into kind of this area? You call it DevOps? Is that kind of where you consider yourself? Yeah. So I think before I was at Contrast, my journey started back at this company called MyEDU probably a decade ago. I came in as a full stack developer, you know, found myself being more and more interested with areas lower in the stack. First, you know, a day of frustration with CSS or JavaScript, and then there was a lot of really interesting innovation happening on the back end and a lot of new data stores. NoSQL was very popular and hot at that time. I just got really interested in those areas and was lucky enough to be able to work at a company that allowed me to focus on my interests. You know, that that really parlayed itself into a focus on API design, where you know how those things were powerful and allowed us to to sort of scale our our SaaS platform as well as you know, our client side offerings, we wanted to build a mobile app, we wanted to build a, a richer UI. And the API to me was the center of that contract. It also gave us a lot of flexibility on the, the infrastructure side to change a data store to use Mongo if we wanted to without impacting the front end look and feel. It just happened to be faster. And um, we were able to, you know, take advantage of that, that flexibility based on contracts. You know, if I think back on it, the way that I sort of got started in the DevOps effort was we were developing these APIs and, and one day we uh, we released a new version and it it worked most of the time. And that just became like a huge source of frustration. Like, why does it work most of the time? And after several hours of digging, we realized that a package on one web server hadn't been upgraded successfully. So we saw these like very strange intermittent failures. That really sent me into a tailspin into the world of you know, Puppet and Chef and Ansible, these config management tools to automate our infrastructure and our operating systems and the, the software that was installed and configured on them. You know, we did a lot of work to rebuild our infrastructure at MyEDU. And then we realized that with a strong foundation, our infrastructure, we were able to deliver our product faster and easier. 
And so we realized that some of our software development practices were, you know, inherited from the enterprise world where we did a six week release cycle. But if we looked at our traffic, we had very cyclical usage of traffic and a lot of folks would use our platform during the months of February, March, April, and then no one would use it in June. So the six week period, if we didn't release an update of software, you know, we couldn't push new features. We couldn't resolve issues for customers. At the time, I kind of raised my hand and said, hey, like we have confidence in our infrastructure. Why don't we start like pushing bug fixes out twice a day? It was kind of a little bit of a crazy idea at the time, but it became very popular with the company and allowed us to receive a complaint from a student in the morning and resolve that issue by the afternoon. We created a really, really quick path to resolve bugs. And that's where it started. Then after we did that for a couple of months, we realized that it worked for other things too. We just consolidated all of our efforts into this one path to release. That to me is sort of how I got into what we call DevOps today or things related to DevOps. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to ask you a question and I've, I've asked other people, I want to see how you, re, you respond to this. So, so being from that area, what term do you see that applies more to what you're doing, DevOps or site reliability engineering? Because I've, I've seen people use a lot of the, those terms sometimes interchangeably, but they don't seem like they're quite interchangeably. How do you kind of view the, the terminology for what you and your team are doing now? Do you call yourself a DevOps team or is it? No, I would fall into the camp of DevOps as a cultural movement more than a team. I have friends and no colleagues that are uh, DevOps engineers. But really, I think the difference between DevOps and site reliability engineering, site reliability engineering is a lot about the automation of monitoring and, and reliability and measurement of, of your application, whereas DevOps is really pervasive in how you develop your application and how you deliver it. The site reliability engineering aspect to me is is more about, it's a lot about production operations and then a lot about the measurement and transparency, sort of the, the measurement and sharing aspect of DevOps. So there's an acronym called CAMS, Culture, Automation, Measurement, and Sharing. And so site reliability is a lot about the last three, but DevOps is really you know all four. I like that. Okay. That makes sense. That's come up in several conversations recently. I think I'm going to steal some of that if that's okay. <laughs> Let's move on a little bit to kind of what we want to talk about today. So, you know, as, as always, we, we like to hear how people are using data to make their customers successful and successful in the company and, and you know, and what you guys are doing as a product. And so, if, you know, when I was reading up a little bit on on contrast, you know, I, I just found that term self-protecting software just to be fascinating. It just seems like very in line with where, you know, a lot of the movement around microservices and, and these kind of, you know, highly scalable applications is going. So just go in there a little more depth, like tell us a little bit more about what Contrast Security does and how you guys, what's the problem for customers that you guys are trying to solve? Like what's that burning issue that you think brings people to the door to want to use Contrast? Sure. So I think really it's probably two burning issues. One is in a pre-production world and one is in a production world. In the pre-production world, we see tons of customers embracing DevOps. They're embracing the automation of their pipelines. They're embracing microservices and small development teams, committing and releasing early and often. And the real struggle with that from a security perspective is that organizations have been developed and security teams specifically around a waterfall model where at the end of your development cycle, you know, you send your source code or, or your changes over to your security team. They review those and then get back to you. Well, that doesn't work if you want to if you want to push three times in a day. You know, the security team can't scale with that. So for us, we put an agent back in your pipeline as far to the left as possible so that you get that feedback about vulnerabilities in your libraries or vulnerabilities in your custom code that you may have introduced so that you can fix them during PR review, during code design even. 
doing your, your own active development so that you don't have to wait for your security team at the end of that pipeline and delay your release process. We want to be security to be part of the process, not a blocker to release at the end of, of the development cycle. And then I think second of all, we have in the production world, we can take that same agent and we deploy it with your application server so that you get the benefits of, of protection from you know known CVEs and common injection attacks in your production space without having to fully commit to redesign your network for something like a WAF. It's just, it lives with, with Tomcat or your node, your node application so that wherever you deploy it, Amazon or Google or Azure or your own data center, that protection is just with the application. There's no special configuration needed for it. It just, it lives in the application server. And we find and I find personally that it works really well just to have that baked into my automation as I'm deploying my application so the security just goes everywhere. It's not this separate, like sort of abstract concept or abstract device that that lives on the network or I trust a different team to manage. You know, it just lives with my application. When you say that, it makes me think it's like, you know, but even back to like the the cultural issue we're talking about with DevOps as a discipline is I think part of what, what the transition has been in the industry is that the engineering team, instead of just adding more people with very siloed skills into hey, you do this on this team, you do this thing on a team that, that we're seeing engineering teams actually being responsible for the end-to-end process. And so there, you know, it seems like now what you're saying, every engineer actually has to be responsible for security. And so what do they do now? This is not about bringing your your typical security professional onto an engineering team and expecting them to contribute as a silo person. They have to contribute as part of the team. I mean, is that, does that resonate with what you've seen with customers? Is that, what do you think? I think so. Absolutely. You know, security is the responsibility of, of the engineering teams. Security teams still act as a as a resource and as experts in the field. But what we want to do is is empower the engineers to solve their own problems. And that's a you know a huge part about about DevOps to me is is not doing things in silos and keeping things hidden from your other teammates. It's if we have a bug, everybody knows about it. If an application is slow in production, everyone knows about it. If the pipeline is broken, you know, that's, it's open and transparent and everyone is able to fix it. One thing that I think we've also seen as, as the scope of an engineer's responsibility has grown sort of from the, through the pipeline into production is we've seen the applications shrink. So that's like where we see microservices. So on an engineering team, you may develop a microservice and be responsible for it from end to end. But that microservice, you know, contributes to a tenth or 25% of your overall APIs, for example. And so as as a small engineering team, you can handle end-to-end what happens with that API from security to performance, production operations, data design, because it's encapsulated, it's a self-contained unit. And then you have other colleagues that are on other teams that run their own microservices and run things their own way. And I think that's also sort of where site reliability comes back into play is there's, there's the contract between all of these small teams that do everything themselves of how that they work together. And that, that's like really where site reliability fits in, I think. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, one term that we've been we've been seeing is I, I remember back years ago, sometimes they would call it rugged DevOps. And now that seems to be turning into DevSecOps. Is that a, is that a term that you guys find customers using now? Or do you guys use that yourself? Or Yeah, we try to use DevSecOps a lot. One of our uh, our founders, Jeff Williams, is, has been a big advocate for rugged DevOps and DevSecOps, you know, for many years, really just trying to get security early in the process of your the development of your application. You know, it reminds me of in my uh, last job, I was at a, another company and I got into a um, 
Twitter war with a guy around rugged DevOps because he was saying that, well, you know, this it's a it's a contra- I don't even remember what he said now. It's a contradiction in terms. It should all be rugged. And it's funny how it's come around now where this this is kind of where things are headed now and people realize they you know, security is part of the entire process and the ops team has to be responsible for it. I think really it highlights just that security is another form of quality. A huge component, I would say, of DevOps is that your tests are automated, they're baked into your pipeline. And it goes without saying that you should have security tests as well. And so, you know, having DevSecOps really just highlights that as a focus, I believe. Yeah, no, absolutely. Maybe turn it a little bit on that. Uh, one of the things we've talked a lot about before, and I, we talked about actually on the last podcast, was around when you think about how data plays into this, one of the things we've talked about is that there's a transition from, you know, it used to be about big data. You get a lot of data in some big store somewhere and you process it. Maybe days later you get answers to your questions. There seems to be a transition now to where you want to have the data and act on it very, very quickly. You know, we call it like fast data or something like that. So talk a little bit more about how you view data as part of this process. Because it seems from what you're saying that if you're if you're making decisions really quickly based on security vulnerabilities or things that you're seeing coming in that, you know, expose certain vulnerabilities, you have to be able to act on it very quickly. And data seems to be a big part of that. So maybe talk a little bit more on how you see see that as part of the process. You know, I, I was actually reminded, this is a bit of a tangent, but this is a, an old sticker from Contrast that's on my water bottle. It's called the world's fastest application security <laughs> product, I think is what it says. I like that. But to me, there is a massive amount of data out there. And there's a lot of really interesting work around how to how to find insight in, in massive, massive data sets. And what we see is that the faster you can get feedback to the customer, the user, the developer, the better off they are. There's no waiting period. There's no guessing game. There's no dependency on an unknown third party. It's setting like very clear and fair expectations around when you should do what with the data that you have. So if you like introduce some new code or a new library in your application, then you're going to want to know that that library has known CVEs in it as soon as possible. You don't want to get to the end of your cycle of development, you know, your sprint two weeks later, and then come back and say, you know, well, I have to refactor all this stuff because now I've learned that my library is out of date. So getting that feedback fast is critical, in my opinion, to having a very smooth like delivery pipeline and DevOps practice. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, one thing that reminded me is you were you were saying that. So as you or been working with customers and you've been seeing people try to adopt this, where do people struggle? You know, all this sounds really great on paper, but, you know, obviously if it was easy, then everybody would be doing it, right? So what kind of holds people, companies back, engineering teams back from being able to implement something like this? That's a great question. From what I've seen, it's really all over the place. A lot of it is maintenance of legacy applications. So we, we talked earlier about how nowadays folks are developing small sets of microservices that interact with one another and they have a defined set of APIs. So with that that microservice that may have a handful of APIs, it's a new development, everything's modern, everything is designed from the start to be testable, modular, and, and be baked into components. The difficulty, I think, is if what we see is with customers that have very large monolithic deployments that you know have been around for decades, it's really hard to unravel that. How do you get into a DevOps friendly process that can get that feedback to you quickly whenever it takes 15 minutes to start up your application for a test, you know, or it requires a custom enterprise license to set up a test server. There's 
just old legacy decisions that were made 20, 25 years ago are difficult, I think, to shoehorn into this process. So we see some folks like really embracing this and rewriting it and empowering dev teams to replace components of you know large monoliths. We also work with teams to like automate and replace their testing infrastructure. So if you have some of your team is in AWS and some of your team is in a co-location facility, how do you get the service endpoints that you need to test your application effectively and quickly and get that feedback with confidence? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it reminds me too, I'm sure you're familiar with Conway's law, right? Yeah. So the organization, what's the organizational communication structure is reflected in the architecture and vice versa. And it it definitely sounds like that might be part of it. Because if you, if you have a company that's still, like a group that's still running a monolithic application, there's a good chance that they may not be culturally and organizationally ready for something like this either, right? Right. And I think that we can, we see companies embrace it and, and really work hard. It's just the feedback cycles are slower than folks that are most successful with this fast feedback model are, are folks that'll have newer services that have been rapidly iterating already. But if, if you're trying to do this as part of you know, one big initiative, it is really challenging from what I've seen. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right about Conway's Law, though. It does these organizational structures that existed 15, 20 years ago are completely different and don't really fit in well with the way that folks want to develop and deploy the software today. Yeah. And it, it, I think sometimes those cultural issues are the hardest ones to deal with because you can go out and buy some, go to some cloud platform or buy some new software platform. But you, if you don't change your culture to be able to you know, adopt this. Yeah. Right. This is absolutely fascinating. And it's very in line with like, you know, some of the other companies I've talked to about this type of thing, where there's a lot of when these engineering teams are now being held responsible for the code, basically cradle to grave, they're struggling with, you know, these disciplines that used to be handled by silo teams. And so, you know, now they're trying to, you know, work at the, you know, what, what you guys I actually saw on your, on your site, like the speed of DevOps. I like that. You know, they're trying to run it like 100 miles an hour. And if they don't have those tool sets to help them do that, I mean, that seems to be a lot of where a lot of the investment's going to be now. Is, you know, how can I get the data and the tool sets to analyze that data to be able to help me make decisions faster? Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think so. So, David, based on like what we talked about, what kind of trends do you see happening in the next few years based on self-protecting software and this kind of built-in embedded security? Are there any interesting trends you're seeing that you, you, you want to talk about? I think that really having security with your application and wherever your application may live or go is critical to you know the speed of DevOps, like you said. It lets you make decisions and, and your team itself is empowered to deploy confidently and quickly and know that security is with you and with your process. There's not another team that you're relying on. There's not another dependency in your organization that, you know, that you're trusting that the team that runs the web application firewall has it in place. You're able to verify that yourself. So it's it's very empowering to give you that that transparency of, of what's going on with your application. You know, some of the other advantages of being with the application, if there's an attack, we're able to see exactly where the attack could have manifested itself and then how to fix it. So I think that what, what we're going to see going forward is is more things that are small components shipped with application servers. As everything shifts to the application, you know, we used to see a lot of practice around hardening operating systems and things lower in the OS. But I mean, you see things like a Yes, ECS Fargate, where now like you can just run containers on a managed cloud, you know, and, and that's just an example. Everything becomes more about the application with Docker, with managed container services like ECS and Fargate, and Google has one as well. 
it becomes more and more and more about the application as as the attack vector. And so if you have your protection and your assessment with the application, to me, is is intuitive and makes a lot of common sense. So it's interesting you bring up Fargate and kind of the the whole containerization part of this. Did you think that that makes this kind of self-protecting software and kind of embedded, you know, security easier or harder with containers? I think it makes it a lot easier because it really narrows the scope of where an attacker would go to exploit your application. And I think also it does put a, a degree of pressure on the cloud provider, some folks like Amazon and Google, but they have hundreds of thousands of engineers that are there to help with that problem. So me as a, as a consumer of their service and a user of their service, I'm able to focus on my application and the libraries in that application and not not worry about the additional layers and additional vectors of attack that, that may exist in the operating system as we see everything collapse towards the application delivery. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've definitely seen the whole idea of containerization is, is so compatible with the whole microservices idea and kind of embedding very small components, which are a lot easier to, to make with higher quality, but also easier to protect. Like you said, I think that's a, it's a super interesting area. So David, thanks a lot for this. I have, I have one other question for you before we, uh, we end the podcast. So a fun question I've heard other people ask before is, so, you know, I looked at your LinkedIn profile here and I saw interesting things about, you know, where you went to school and what you did, but what's, what's something that's not on there that, uh, you know, people wouldn't know if they just looked at your LinkedIn profile, something interesting about yourself? I don't know if this is interesting, but it's something that is about me that's not on my LinkedIn profile is that I changed locations from Austin to uh, Indianapolis recently. So that's, you know, a hidden uh, secret about me. I, I moved last August. How do you like Indianapolis? I have to be honest, winter has been very difficult for me. I've been in <laughs> Texas for about about 12 years. We had a very, very cold winter in the Midwest. It was below zero for, I felt like three months, it was probably about two or three weeks, but it's been brutal. I wish that we'd have a huge snow. You know, I was excited to kind of move back here, get closer to family and get a, you know, two foot snow and everybody get, gets work and school called off and we have a great time. But we've just had really, really brutally cold weather and two, three inches here and there that stays on the ground for, you know, three weeks. That's my life outside of the square room, which is my office. <laughs> well, I, uh, I moved to uh, California five years ago, and I, I tell you, I, uh, when I look outside and see blue skies and mid-60s, 70s, uh, I, I don't miss the snow, so I, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. I still have you know, a lot of friends that live in Austin, and they had a snow day in Austin this year, actually two of them, I believe. And um, in Austin, it, it snows overnight, and everything goes on to a two-hour delay, or, or work gets shut down, and then everybody's having margaritas and queso by lunchtime. So it's... Uh, Definitely a different kind of snow day if that ever happens in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I hear you. Hey, well, uh, David, really enjoyed having you on the podcast. And this has been a great discussion. And maybe we'll have you back again sometime to talk more about contrast. I appreciate your time. Cool. Great catching up, Ben. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Masters of Data. And look for the next podcast in your feed. Thank you. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com.